My name is Drake. Pumped to be here with you guys tonight. Guys, we're kicking off a four-part mini-series to end the year, which is just insane. So we've got four sermons that we're going to do on the life of David. It's a beautiful graphic. I actually haven't seen that yet. Delightful. So we're kicking off this series on the life of David, and here's why we're doing it. Here's why I'm pumped, because I think this series is going to give us a new perspective in how we see the Old Testament. And as we look at different characters in the Old Testament, guys, I think a lot of times these characters can kind of be these like famous figures in our mind that we can't relate with. But as we look into the life of David, we're going to see this is a human with flaws that we can actually connect with and learn what does it look like to follow Jesus together. And we actually see that there's themes throughout the Old Testament. Things like the sacrificial system, things like temple, for those of you who took that class, things like kingdom and kingship, all those things that are communicated in the Old Testament that are actually pointing us to the greater story that God's unfolding in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so as we read the Old Testament with this new lens, it will allow us to appreciate it more because we can see it in the fuller context that it was meant to be in. Because all of the Bible... Genesis to Revelation is actually pointing to the story of God sending his son to redeem this broken world. And we're going to get a glimpse of that as we zero in on the life of David. So we're going to go through four stories in the books of 1 and 2 Samuel. Um, it's actually just, you can see it as one coherent book, but it's so long they broke it up. So you can open up to 1 Samuel 16 for tonight. Here's the question I want to ask for us tonight. How do you conquer the obstacles in your life? Think about it. Like, what's an obstacle that you're currently facing in your life that you're going through? One recently that you felt. Okay, maybe for some of you, it's like you're looking for a relationship. Okay, spring is in the air. You, you see that as something you need. Maybe some of you, you're like, okay, summer's coming up. I've got an internship. That internship's going to lead to a career. That's going to lead to a successful and secure future. You're like, i got to lock that down. Some of you, it might be the wrestling that's going on within your own thoughts that no one else sees. What is the obstacle in your life? Because we've all faced different obstacles, and if we're honest with ourselves, it takes up a lot of thought in our mind. Like when we lay our head down on our pillow at night, it finds us there. And for some of you, it, it might be this looming event that's in the future that you just count down the days one after another as it slowly approaches closer and closer. Some of you, it might be what controls your emotions. Like whether you have a good day or a bad day, this obstacle is what determines that. Or sometimes you might feel the need to escape even thinking about this obstacle, whether that be through Netflix, whether that be through alcohol, some way to just get it off your mind, because if you think about it too long, it's going to crush you. What's your obstacle? Because though those obstacles might be different for all of us, they continue to come up throughout life, and they don't seem to get any easier. So how do we become the type of people that conquer these obstacles? So we're looking at 1 Samuel 16, because this is the moment that David steps onto the scene and we're going to answer that exact question. So let's look at first, the first verse of First Samuel 16. A lot of firsts there. Um, it says, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? 
Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king from his sons. Okay, so a little background. Who's he talking about with Saul? Saul was the previous king over Israel. The people of God said, hey, we don't actually want God to be our king. We need a person because that's what the rest of the nations are doing. So they found Saul, who in scripture it says that he was the most handsome man in all the world. Okay, He was built very strong. And so in everyone's eyes, this dude's a born king. Okay, This man is one that's meant to lead us. It's a compliment if they're pointing to you for being handsome. Um, but this is the guy that's meant to lead us as a nation. But here's the thing. He might be great in man's eyes, but he actually fails God. He sins against God, and God removes the anointing from him. And, Saul is, and Samuel is grieving this happening. Like the king over Israel is gone. What are we going to do? But then God says, go to Bethlehem, bring your oil and your horn, and go and you'll find a son of Jesse that you can pour this oil on that you're going to anoint him as king over Israel. And he says, bring a heifer, bring a nice cow. Uh, you will sacrifice it as a peace offering that then you will share as a meal with that family. And so he says, go and do this thing and invite Jesse and all of his sons to be a part of this because the king of Israel is coming from that family. So he goes and does this. He, he sacrifices the cow. He shares this peace offering as a meal with the family. And then he lines up the brothers. There's eight of them. He lines them up. The first one, Eliab, he looks at him. And Samuel thinks, surely this, the Lord's anointed, is before him. Why? Because he's the oldest. He's the strongest of the group. He has the most natural experience. He's been bossing around seven brothers most of his life. Like in the community, he's seen as a leader. He is also the greatest warrior of the bunch. So in every sense, this dude looks like a great king. To Samuel, he's like, surely this is the one that God is choosing because he is great in the eyes of man. But then the Lord says to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So he looks at Eliab, says no. He goes to the next one, Abinadab. He says nope. He looks at Shema, nope. Four more that are there. Seven of the brothers are there. Nope, 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 nope. Okay, so then you have to imagine Samuel's like, all right, let me just clarify something real quick. You are Jesse, right? Okay, cool. Um, this town we're in Bethlehem, right? Sweet. Okay, so God told me to Jesse in Bethlehem, there'd be a son that would be anointed. He said no to all these. Do you have any other sons? And then the father says, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And so we see that there is a son in that family that the father didn't see impressive enough to invite to this meal. That he is actually the youngest and the smallest of the family and probably stuck in this identity of being the annoying little brother. Like, he's the youngest of the crew, so he doesn't have any natural-born leadership. Like, he doesn't have any younger brothers to boss around and to lead. He doesn't have any experience on his own. And then more than that, that we feel the weight of the Father's words where he says, but behold, and essentially he says, don't worry about him, though, he's just a shepherd. Just imagining the father saying, hey, don't worry about him, though. 
We didn't even invite him here. And so we see that he's the youngest, but him being a shepherd even speaks to how much more unimpressive he was. Because he was separated from the rest of his family to go tend to the sheep. Okay, he was busy hanging out with the sheep. And where the family was working on the farm or going out to war and having a lot of quality time together, he was isolated with his animals, unable to grow in those relationships. Guys, these shepherds were set apart from everyone else in society in the worst way possible. Like they were rugged from endless hours in the sun. Their hair had gone mad to make them look like a crazy person. They slept night after night in the dirt and they walked in the heat of the day, day after day, sweating and having a smell that was something special, okay? Something that you could maybe even notice this person coming from a distance, right? Shepherds were also the lowest on the ladder in society. In Genesis 46, 34, we see that Egyptians saw shepherds as detestable. They were known as untrustworthy and incompetent. They weren't even allowed to come into Jerusalem to practice religious rituals if they wanted to because of who they were. Guys, get this. People would tell shepherds in that time, or people would tell other people about shepherds, don't ever buy any moot, food, milk, mixed together is mood, um, <laughs> Milk or food from this person because it was probably stolen. Literally, they probably stole it from someone, so you better not buy it from them. And get this one line that was said from that time no one should ever feel obligated to rescue a shepherd who has fallen into a pit. Okay, because apparently that happened a lot. Um, they were literally just like, hey, let that shepherd die. It's not worth your time trying to rescue them out. So it's not the best look that David is the youngest and he's a shepherd, right? He is literally defined as the least impressive person to where his own father doesn't even feel the need to invite him to share this meal with the rest of the family. And guys, as you hear that, you just have to feel the weight that David probably felt day after day about, am I ever going to be good enough? Like, I just imagine walking through the pastures and laying his head down at night crying because he doesn't have the relationship that he wants with his family. He feels the weight of that, am I ever going to measure up over and over and over in his mind? Do you ever feel that? That same question of will I ever measure up? That weight of inadequacy that we feel, that constant running in our mind of, man, am I ever going to be good enough like that person or that person? Maybe you come in this room tonight and you just feel this weight like, am I going to be good enough? If people knew the real me, they would wonder why I'm here. Or if that's not you right now, I think we can all recognize that this is our greatest fear. Like, to be known by someone and then to find that that someone doesn't approve of us anymore. Like, I can't share that from my life. Like, what, what if they do this in response? And so here we find this part of the story gives us a glimpse into the brokenness of humanity that we all can connect with at one time or another. We all feel the weight of that isolation, loneliness. Am I going to measure up? And so the unimpressive David, out on his own, the father says, hey, he's out hanging out with the sheep. Samuel says, yeah, bring him here. So let's look at verse 12. And he sent Jesse and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome, great reputation, 
And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. Okay, I didn't, I didn't know what ruddy meant. I don't know if you use that in your vocabulary. It means healthy. Okay, so basically what he's saying, he's, this is a handsome, healthy young lad. Okay, good looking kid. He's not a natural born king like Saul was though. Like, he might be pretty, but he, he's not the one that we would look to and say, that dude is for sure king over Israel. And so that is their first thought when they look at him. But what they don't see is the incredible faith of David. So in 1 Samuel 13, 14, Samuel's actually talking to Saul, and he says, you have lost your reign to the kingdom, and now there's going to be someone after you. So let's look at that verse. But now your kingdom shall not come. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be the prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord has commanded you. So God is saying in this verse that David is a man after my heart, something that no one else could see. The, the eyes of man couldn't confirm because they didn't see the hours that he would spend walking in the pastures, constantly praying to God, because that's the only person he could talk to. Writing song after song that we now read in the book of Psalms. What they didn't see is the tears that he shed at night when he laid his head down, because he didn't have the relationship that he wanted with his family, but God is the only one that he could bring those cries to. What they didn't see is the trust that grew in David's heart, when he had to face lions and bears who were attacking his sheep and killing them with his hands. What they didn't see is the nights that he would fix his eyes up on the beautiful sky, staring at the stars and saying something like this. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. David was unimpressive in every sense of the word in the world's eyes. But he was a man whose heart wanted what God's heart wanted. And in these seasons of isolation, the only way that he could turn was to God himself. And guys, as I was, uh, I was thinking about this, that just hit so hard to home for me. Like, isn't that true? Like in our seasons of loneliness and isolation, we feel that we just draw near to God in a unique way. Like we come to him and say, God, the only one I can turn to is you. And I'm sure you guys have felt it one way or the other in the past year to where you're like, God, all I have is you. And we can connect with David yet again where we see the realness of the pain of life, where we feel loneliness and isolation, and we say, God, you're the only one I have. And in that moment, we cling to him in a unique way that we wouldn't do in normal life. We hold on to him like never before. So David grew to be a man of great faith through these seasons. And Samuel anoints him to be the next king, right in front of his brothers. So probably some family tension there. Uh, but then the Spirit of God comes upon David. Okay, now we're going to skip to chapter 17. This is going to be one of the most famous stories in all the Bible. Okay, we got David and Goliath. Uh, it's used so many times in church context, but also the secular. Like even during March Madness, we hear the David versus Goliath story. We're going to go over that right now, okay? 
Let's look at verse 2 through 4. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on, one, on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. Okay, so we actually have a picture of the Valley of Allah, like where this battle went down. And we see on that far hillside, that's where you're imagining the Philistine army just thousands of people on that hill. And on the near side, you've got the Israelites settling in their camp, and they're looking over this valley at one another. And all of a sudden, this massive human being comes out from the crowd and slowly walks by himself to the middle of that valley. It's a man by the name of Goliath, who is called Champion. Can't think of a better name for a warrior. And he's been a warrior since his youth. And if you're wondering what in the world is six cubits in a span... Okay, that's nine feet and nine inches tall. So if you've ever seen a basketball hoop, pretty close to that. Okay, this is the dude that's coming out, and the next three verses are just explaining the state-of-the-art armor that he has. Like the mesh bodyguard that he carries is around 125 pounds. This is a man of greatness. This is about as obvious of an obstacle that you can have. Okay, they're staring at him at the, in the valley, and he is commanding to the Israelites. He is challenging them. He says, bring your best to the table. Greatness against greatness, and if you win, you'll be free. And if I win, you'll be slaved for the rest of your existence. And so once the Israelites hear this, every single one of them is just trembling. They, they retreat back, and they have this wall of people just standing in absolute fear, not saying a word. You can hear the paralyzing silence of the wind going through the valley because no one wants to speak up. Everyone's looking around like, who's going to be the one to do it? I'm sure not going to be the one. They're like nudging people like, hey, you want to go? Like, no one wants to be the person because they see that how great Goliath is and how they can't conquer him. This continues for 40 days, and that's on the 40th day is the moment that David rolls back on the scene, and he's been upgraded from a shepherd boy to a food runner um, because his dad sends David with food for his brothers and to make a 12-mile walk to go to the camp to drop off this food. And so he sees Goliath coming out to the valley again and saying, bring out your greatest, the same command that he gave. And David hears this, and immediately... David says, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Okay, man's got some boldness, right? He's got a zealous heart for God in this moment. He cries out, who is this man? And so his brothers immediately just start ridiculing him like, Dude, what are you doing? Like, get back to the sheep. Get back to the food running and bring back this message to our dad. We know you're just trying to set those aside in order to see the battle. We know there's evil in your heart. But then next, we see an incredible step of faith by David. How does David conquer this obstacle in his life? Well, he doesn't see Goliath as man sees him. But he actually sees that Goliath is up against the armies of the living God. And he says, Goliath, you have no shot. He realizes that in that moment, God is going to deliver 
the hand of Goliath over to him and rescue all of Israel. Guys, and then after this, Saul, the king, like says, hey, take my armor. You're going to need it. Good luck. And just sends him out. And David's like, no, I haven't tested this armor. And in my mind, I'm like, untested armor is better than no armor. But he doesn't want it. And so he's like, no, I'm good. And then he goes to a creek nearby. He kneels down and he picks up five smooth stones, it says. Everything about this story is absolutely insane. Like you've got this dude that is a mighty warrior from his youth who comes out with a sword, a spear, and a javelin. And then you've got him up against a little shepherd boy with five rocks. At least they're smooth ones, though, you know? Like, he, he finds those, and he, like, puts them in his pouch, and he's like, okay, let's do this. And he, he, this is what he says to Goliath. You come to me with the sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, who you have defied. His incredible faith caused him to see that God was Lord over this obstacle. So he takes his sling, Storms down into that valley, chucks one stone to the dome, and down goes Goliath. And then he's like, dang it. Well, I, I told you, Goliath, I was going to cut off your head, but I only have four rocks left. That's not going to do much. So then he goes over, takes Goliath's sword, slays him by cutting off his head. And in that moment, David wins, and Israel is free. Incredible story. We've all heard it in one way or another, but we have to ask, okay, this is how David conquered that obstacle in his, in his life. What does that mean for us and the obstacles that we face in our life? One way to take this famous story and to apply it to your life is like, I just need to have enough faith, right? I need to have enough faith in God to go out and conquer whatever obstacles before me. I need to be like David. Okay, that's, that's one way. I'm going to say it's the wrong way, um, because here's the thing. You aren't David in this story. You are the Israelites trembling in fear, paralyzed, not able to do anything on the hillside because you realize you can't conquer this obstacle. We have to see that David was never meant to speak of our story, but he was always pointing to someone else's, someone that would come from the line of David, born in the town of Bethlehem. Someone who was born in the most unimpressive way possible in a stable next to cow manure and growing up in a way that no one around him saw him as impressive. Like, you're just from Bethlehem. You're just a carpenter. And Isaiah prophesies about him in Isaiah 53. He says he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Jesus was unimpressive in every way in the world's eyes where Israel was expecting a king that would come and take the throne of Jerusalem and take over Rome, what they actually got was a man that came in humility. A man whose heart wanted what God's heart wanted. And he followed his father's will all the way to the point of riding a donkey into Jerusalem. And he didn't storm into a valley with a crowd of people cheering behind him. He walked up a hill carrying a cross with everyone scoffing at him. He didn't bring an animal to be sacrificed for a peace offering. He himself was the one that was sacrificed to offer peace. 
He didn't slay someone. No, he himself was the one that was slain. In this moment, God didn't deliver him, but instead poured out his wrath on him. At the cross, we don't see a great king on display in the world's eyes, but one who seemingly didn't rise to the occasion. One who was unimpressive as he hung there, bloody on a criminal's cross, slowly dying because his blood was filling up his lungs. In every way, seemingly losing the battle. I want you to think back to the obstacle that you thought at the beginning of this message. Whatever one you see currently in your life, because here's what we see at the cross. Your greatest obstacle isn't the test you have. Your greatest obstacle isn't a future career and what that will be like. Your greatest obstacle is who is going to be that relationship that you get to match up with that thinks you're funny. Okay? It's, that is not your greatest obstacle. Your greatest obstacle is your sin before a holy God. It's your sin that brings about spiritual death in your life where the things of God seem foolish because you can't imagine something so beautiful taking place. It's your sin that directs your eternity to be one away from the presence of a loving father. It's your sin that creates division in every relationship that you have. It is your sin that causes you to still constantly search for satisfaction as you were designed to do, but never actually be satisfied. It's your sin that breaks the heart of a living God. Your obstacles don't even compare. Here's what's tough about this obstacle. There's absolutely nothing you can do about it on your own. You're standing on the hillside just like the rest of the Philistines, looking down at the valley, seeing Goliath, realizing that you cannot conquer this. Like, your good works can't outweigh your bad. You can't be a good enough person to earn Christ. No, your sin deserves death. And that's exactly what happened at the cross. Because Jesus did away with the greatest obstacle of humanity while all of humanity was trembling in fear, unable to do anything about it. In, the, in that moment where he breathed his last and said, it is finished, we know that while he may have looked unimpressive to the world, he was busy defeating the giant of Satan, sin, and death. And that three days later, the roles reversed where Jesus was seen as the greatest man in mankind and Satan was seen as the unimpressive one that couldn't keep a dead man in the grave. And Jesus rose from the grave. And he did that so that you can too. And now, our greatest fears of being known and not approved of or not measuring up are wiped away for all of eternity. The kingdom of God is completely upside down from this world that we live in. It's not about becoming great in the eyes of your peers. It's not about becoming great in this world's eyes. It's about having, having a humble heart before a holy God. In 1 Samuel 2, we see a famous prayer in Scripture known as Hannah's Prayer. And this prayer basically serves as the topic sentence to the rest of the book of Samuel. In verse 2 through 5, it says, the bow of the mighty is now broken, and those who stumbled are now strong. Those who were well-fed are now starving, and those who were starving are now full. The childless woman now has seven children, and the woman with many children wastes away. Completely upside down. 
roles reversed. Here's what this prayer is saying the rest of the book of Samuel is going to be about. God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. We see that this is completely upside down from this world's pitch to you. We see that where the world is telling you to make your name great and live for your own desires, striving after everything you can, we see the kingdom of God says that you're important, but you're not the point of the story. And just like all of us watching a heroic movie, think of your favorite one. Every single one of us wants to associate ourselves with the hero. But we have to see we are the furthest thing from that. Like We're not the hero of the story. We're the one desperately needing someone to save us. We are like the Israelites trembling at the top of the hill, paralyzed by fear, unable to do anything to conquer the greatest obstacle before them until someone came and conquered it for them. And you know what none of the Israelites were probably doing the next day? Saying, how can I make this story about myself? How can I like, convince people like what I brought to the table at that battle? Okay, it's pretty, pretty clear cut. Two guys down in the valley, no one else. And yet we do this with the gospel. Like we look at the cross and what Jesus did and then we walk away and say, hey, look how good I've been this past week. Look at my reading plan and all my check marks compared to someone else's. But when we come to the cross, we realize we are stripped of any sense of pride. Like you don't want to see what you brought to the table when you go to the cross. It is so heart-wrenching. And so we feel the weight of this that Christian, it is not about you. And that's incredibly freeing. Like you can stop trying to be impressive before God. You can stop comparing yourself to everyone that you see, scaling whether you're good enough compared to them. You can stop trying to read all these books and memorize all these verses in order to look more knowledgeable than someone else to justify your existence. You can stop chasing a guy or a girl trying to impress them by your good moral behavior. You can stop running to the spotlight Because you realize that is not what God wants. God wants a humble heart before him. In Psalm 51, we see David crying out this very request. In verse 16 and 17, it says, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. David's like, it's not what I bring to the table. My sacrifices, my good works aren't going to do anything. God, what you want more than anything is a humble and broken heart before you. This is what I want for Saul Company more than anything else. More than numbers, more than anything else. I want us to be a people that come humbly before a holy God. That we would not look at our outward, impressive stats, but we would actually look inward and say, am I someone that's humbly coming before God? Am I someone that's coming to God and saying, hey, this is your life, not my own. You decide how I spend my four years in college, not myself. You decide what I live for, not the passions of my own heart. I'm going to trust your word, even though I disagree with it, because I'm in no position to counter your word. That we would humbly come before God and say, God, my life is not my own. I want to live 
and sacrifice my life for the good of other people, that we would surrender our heart before him. So how do we become this type of humble people? Because if we're honest, like that, that is the greatest struggle for all of us. Like how do we become humble? Because if I think about it, I'm thinking about myself, which is not all that humble. How do we become humble? Day after day, after day, after day, we fix our eyes on the cross of Christ. Because at the cross, we are stripped of any ability to have pride in ourselves. At the cross, there's no ability to make it about ourselves. We don't want to. Like we lay our sin before Christ and say, it's all about you. We simply are amazed at the one who came to conquer the greatest obstacle that we never could. From the cross, we live in a new contentment, knowing that our greatest obstacle has already been defeated. It is finished. Here's 10 implications for you as a result. By his death, you have life. By his wounds, you are healed. By his suffering, you have peace. By his blood, you are white as snow. By his resurrection, you will rise too. By his victory, your chains are gone. By his faithfulness, you are faithful. By his grace, you have been made made new. By his seat on the throne, you will reign with him. And in his freedom, you are free. So, somebody, if that is true, what obstacle in this world can ever shake you? Let's pray. Father, as I read this story, I I just even sense in my own heart the desire to be the hero, the desire to be David in this story. God, I long to impress other people. I long to impress you with my own good works and what I bring to the table. But what I need to realize from this story is that it was never about me because I'm incredibly broken. There's nothing I can do to conquer this obstacle of sin in my life because that is ultimately what I love. Like that's, that's what I want to run after. That this story was never meant to put me on a pedestal, but to put the cross on a pedestal. That we would look to Jesus and see that he is the one that died the death that we should have died. And he rose to life so that we might have life too. God, would we praise you? Would we come before you humbly and yet confident that you have overcome the grave? Jesus, it's all about you. Help us to look at the cross with new eyes this week. Help us to appreciate you with a new heart this week that we would realize it's not about what we bring to the table. All we brought was our sin, but it's about what Christ did on our behalf, and we cling to that with a tighter grip. It's in your name we pray. Amen.